What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the 100th episode of the Always Hope podcast. Can you believe that? 100 episodes. I mean, I'm just amazed that we've done so many episodes, and I'm so grateful for the stories that I've heard over the years that I've done this show because I know that this show has helped so many people, helping them in their emotional, their relational, their spiritual health. And I pray that this episode finds you well. And again, I'm just so grateful for each and every single one of you who have given me your time, who have given me your ear. And I pray that this episode may continue to bless you just as the other episodes have done before it. So because today is a special episode, I thought it would be great to welcome back a very special guest, a common voice here on the Always Hope podcast, a reoccurring guest, Dr. Jennifer Morrell, moral theologian and director of research for the International Institute of Culture and Gender Studies. And so in today's episode, we talk about her research on sex and gender. This research literally brought her all over the world. She interviewed leaders in 14 different cultures to gain a better understanding of how culture influences our understanding of our human sexuality. It's an amazing episode. You're going to absolutely love it. Well, in today's episode, we do talk at length about the findings of her research, the various stories that she heard from these leaders throughout the world, how she came to understand what it is that that culture does and how cultures examine healthy relationships between men and women, the dangers of falling into these sociopolitical extremes on these topics that we are currently facing in our American culture, that is, and how to pursue the truth about our human embodiedness. So it's a wonderful episode getting into the weeds of understanding what sex and gender is, understanding the differences between those topics and how culture certainly influences it and how our faith is the foundational understanding of everything that it means to be a human person. So if you find this show helpful, please leave a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share it on the socials. Share share with your friends or family members. Again, hey, if you found this show episode, then I'm sure it will be a blessing for others. So let's get into this conversation with Dr. Jennifer Morrell. Dr. Jennifer Morrell, welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Oh, <laughs> always awake. a gift. Still awake. <laughs> what what time is it over there right now? It's late, it's, is it? It's almost 9 p.m. Oh, mercy. Well, get your French coffee ready and uh, <laughs> let's fire it up. We're just getting started at 9 o'clock your time. God bless you. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, always a privilege to, to have you on the show to talk about these topics, I mean, this stuff related to sex and gender obviously is um, um, hot topic to talk about um, because we just have a lot of questions uh, surrounding it. Um, there's a lot of confusion. And then in that confusion, we, we, we find a pool, um, socially speaking, in terms of gravitating to one extreme or to the other and, and just trying to hold the tension of, of the truth that 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 is present and beautiful. Um, so. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna talk. So over the last few years, you uh, have been well. You've been in France now for since COVID, but before wow. COVID and the, before the world ended, you were traveling <laughs> the world <laughs> and embarking on a research study that was trying to understand the relationship between sex and gender, and even more so the church's teaching of gen- these topics, but understanding them through a cultural perspective. Um, so. Tell us a little bit more just about the study, and and I know you don't have all the research figured out yet, but just in in concept and what you did, uh, just tell us a little bit more about the study itself. 
Um, yes, so I had back in 2019, 2020, as you said, before the world ended, but when it was on its way already, <laughs> um, I had the privilege of being able to apply for a sabbatical year. And I think at the beginning, I had no initial pull to, to, to studying questions on sex and gender, but but it was a question that constantly came up at Notre Dame Seminary when I was teaching there. I would do clergy study days, when I would meet young women, when I would meet young men. And so it was clear there needed to be what, what John Paul II calls a theology of masculinity and femininity. Hmm. And he specifically asks for this in his theology of the body catechesis. He says, a theology of the body, which is rooted in the fact that we are created male and female in the image and likeness of God, leads to a theology of masculinity and femininity. And they're just kind of like a mic drop, you know? So one of those great passages, we're like, wow, and the seminarians would always say, what does that mean? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't elaborate on it. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more it, it made sense that if we wanted to understand what it meant to be male and female, what, if we want to understand what it means to live that out, um, that we need to look not just at sacred scripture, but as St. John Paul II does, to look at sac sacred scripture through the lens of lived experience. So I'll give you one of my favorite examples from Theology of the Body where he does this. Please. Um, it's towards the, the third, well, the second part of the triptych, if you're looking at it in that sense, but when he begins to talk about well, the virtue. So, so for people who don't know what, you're, what the triptych is. So again, the theology of the body is catechesis, first five years of JP2's pontificate. He sets up these Wednesday catechesis. And in this Wednesday catechesis, every Wednesday, he would give this public lecture um, that were really dense, by the way. When you read it, you're like, who even understood this if they were just sitting there at St. Peter's? They were walking like, through the piazza yeah, and they yeah, just they, kept they, on walking. Yeah, they kept on walking. They're like, my cappuccino is great. Let's keep going. So like... <laughs> Uh, but but the whole the whole catechesis, um, it, it it is broken up into the three parts. And so just give us a, a rough yes. ten thousand mile outline of what the three parts. Okay, are. so the first part is basically what it means that we're created in the image and likeness of God. Done. The second part is what does it mean that we are both fallen and at the same time redeemed. Done. And then the third part is basically like. What is the fact that we will be resurrected mean for our daily lives today? Mm -hmm. Done. Mm -hmm. So in that second part, when he's talking about the fact that we're fallen and redeemed, he says, um, when we, in order to respond to concupiscence and specifically in order to respond to the lusts that we find in our hearts, when we sift through them, we need what he calls the virtue of purity of heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this beautiful paragraph in which he talks about how often when we first begin to practice a virtue, we're afraid, right? We're afraid that it will be difficult. Practicing a virtue is a lot of like running a marathon, which I know somebody who did that. Hey, who are you talking about? <laughs> we did some podcasts on it as well. Yeah. Um, some loser. You know, it's a, you, when you go to begin, you're afraid. And he says, you, um, you feel as if you're going to fall into the void. And he says, but even just the first time when you begin to practice that virtue, there's something almost familiar about it, as well as a joy in having done that, right? The reality that I'm no longer a slave to my impulses. And so it's beautiful because it means he's reading scripture through our own experiences of struggling with virtues. And at the same time, being free by the Holy Spirit, working through those virtues. So 
long, long explanation just to say, I thought, well, if we're going to look at sacred scripture, what it means to be created male and female in the image and likeness of God, specifically with an accent on male and female, we really need to look at that through our lived experience. And it's true that that lived experience in different cultures is different. I remember I, I lived in Rome for 10 years when I was doing my, my doctoral studies there. And I worked with women from Italy. I worked with women from Eastern Europe. Um, and we would have these conversations where we found a lot of things we had in common, but also in our conversations with one another, we were able to expand our understanding of what it meant to be women. I'm Cajun by culture and a Cajun woman gets married and has babies as, as quickly as possible, <laughs> you know, and I was 30 something and I was not married and I didn't have any babies. And that was a real struggle for me. And one of my uh, Italian colleagues, she said, I have an aunt who never got married and nobody thought that was weird. And I was like, really, you can do that. <laughs> you cannot get married. That's not weird. Right. But that was such a gift to me. And, and for me to speak to her about a woman not feeling pressured either to have a career or to stay at home and take care of the children, but to find her own place in making those decisions. It wasn't something she had heard about in Italy either. And so I thought, okay, if we want to understand what it means to be male and female created in the in image and likeness of God, and to understand that in a way that's full and not stereotypical, we need to investigate those different experiences in different cultures. And so that's how I began traveling the world, 14 different cultures, to have interviews with experts on gender in each one of those cultures to better understand what it means to be male in those cultures, what it means to be female, what we have in common around the world as men and women, and then those different gifted ways that each culture also lives out gender or lives out masculinity and femininity. Wow, that's incredible. That's great. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, we certainly we could just go back and talk about John Paul II's quote about taking those first steps. And you're right in his insight. I mean, he's a, he, the pastor's heart, a man who has listened to many confessions and many stories and to be able to, to take that, you know, up and take that approach and be able to say, okay, like there, there, this is, this is how we see this, not just through these theoretical lenses, but through this lived experience, um, which I know is phenomenological, you know, in, in nature, in the sense that the experience does teach us, um, coupled together with, with the truth. And so you, you run with that, with that idea and you say, Hey, let's just travel the world to 14, 14 different cultures, which is incredible. I mean, like, I know you're still sifting through it all because of the pandemic and life changes and circumstances and everything that's happened in the last three years since then. But what are you finding in terms of similarities with an understanding of these concepts throughout the world? And where are differences that, that you're already starting to see? I think one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing um, is that there are some basic ways that men and women live in different cultures, and yet they, that they express those differently, right? So uh, one of the things that really impressed me was um, that in many cultures, when there is a crisis in the culture itself, that it's often women who step up and take a leadership role in a way that they haven't before. And uh, when, and we kind of spoke about this in an earlier podcast, right? Scripturally in terms of women imaging God as savior. But this is certainly something that struck me the more that I began to kind of listen to women and then to sift through those interviews. So 
I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, yeah, one, certainly the, the Northern Cheyenne, the, the Native Americans, which is where I began my, my journey, extremely impressed by them. Um, and there I met uh, Tiana Limpi, who's the head of um, the Office for Historical Preservation for the Northern Cheyenne Tribe. And typically in her culture, it is men who pass on the tradition, right? To the, even to the extent there's some stories that are not told to women. And yet because of her degree, because of what she knows about her own tribe, often when it comes to negotiations with the US government in terms of artifacts, lands, um, human remains of the Northern Cheyenne, it's, she's the only person at the table who is a woman, and she's the only person who's able to speak from the Northern Cheyenne perspective, right? And so she's had to kind of navigate her own uh, trepidation in terms of it's the men who protect and defend the culture, as well as knowing that she's the only one who's in the bet who can best do that, right? I saw this as well. They had a conference there regarding domestic abuse um, in Montana. And what was really interesting for me there was that the emphasis was not so much on the women, although there was certainly, right, there was a, a very good, um, there was a, there was much spoken about how to get women out of situations of domestic abuse, the aid that can be given to them. Often they need a lot of legal aid as well as places to live, how to help them with their children. But the emphasis overriding or overarching was not on demonizing the persons who had committed this kind of domestic violence, right, or sexual abuse, but was really on, on how to help them out of their own situations mm -hmm. that led to them being abusive, right? Um, they said it was kind of this idea as if there was a sickness that they had found in the men of their culture, and they wanted to help to save and to rescue them from that. And there, there is, in fact, a Northern Cheyenne proverb that says the, the battle is never won until the hearts of the women are on the ground, right? So kind of this idea, it's they say, it doesn't matter how many arms you have, it doesn't matter how many horses you have, it's the hearts of the women that determine the battle. So I certainly saw this um, with the Native Americans. I saw this in India as well. When I was there, I had the privilege of speaking with, her name is Donna Fernandez. In 1979, she founded a group called Vimoshina. And uh, this, of course, was also when we were in second wave feminism in the U.S. So there is a lot of um, economic struggle for rights, as well as this is when, unfortunately, contraception and abortion get introduced into the women's movement. And she said, people thought this is what we were doing in forming a women's group. But they began by de doing development work in slums. Um, and then at the same time, they realized that they were having an abundance of what are, are called dowry deaths. Right. So in, in India, the practice has traditionally been it's outlawed now, but it's still often culturally practiced that when a woman is married, her family gives a dowry, give, they give gifts, very expensive gifts to the family of the husband. And um, with a growing consumerism, often the husband and his family with whom the new bride would be living were no longer satisfied with what they had received and they would harass the new bride, either until she gave them more gifts, more money, or until she committed suicide, yeah. right? And um, what would often happen was either that she would commit suicide or her husband would douse her um, with gasoline, strike a match, light it, and throw it at her. 
And so they began to wonder why all these horrific. women were burning to death, because this is how it was being reported in the newspapers. These women were burning to death. They were defective stoves. And Donna has this amazing sense of humor. She said, we wondered why if all the stoves were defective, they weren't being found in police stations. Right? <laughs> but the numbers were just mounting. And so they were able to work to um, to help um, reduce these number of dowry deaths to make dowries illegal. Um, and to better to better help women to get out of those abusive situations. The last so one. What you're saying, sorry. sorry to interrupt you. I mean, these stories are obviously mm -hmm. horrific from uh, abuse in uh, the Cheyenne community in northern Montana. Then this situation, obviously, of these dowry deaths. What you're communicating is that, again, one of the things that you saw culture -wide, worldwide was that in these moments of crises, there, there was, even though these circumstances are, as you're saying, it, their violence that is that is spousal in nature, I guess, you know, domestic violence or even the dowry, but that the response by these women wasn't just to get rid of the men or get rid of the 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 for lack of a better word, the the, the arrangements, um, but find a better way to do it. So finding a better way of being able to um, honor the culture and the practices of the culture while still recognizing wholeheartedly that these circumstances of violence um, are also horrific and that there is a way of being able to honor the, the culture's particular expression of marriage, of sex, of gender, um, but being able to do that in a way that still honors, that, that, that is still better, that is you know, honoring the culture but also moving, moving forward and not just trying to abolish or obliterate the, the institutions and the cultures that existed beforehand and saying that that's the only way forward, but trying to move forward in a way that is that is respectful. Is, is that right? Exactly. I think you, if we want to use like a, a contemporary film example, we could think of it kind of as Wonder Woman, right? So yes, it's an right. island of all yeah. of all women. She ends yeah. up going to Great Britain, which is an island basically of all men because women are, are considered to be represented. They're not even allowed in um, these discussions in parliament. And yet at the same time, the response by Wonder Woman and the Amazonian women is not to get rid of the men, right? They're in the midst of this huge war. The response is not that. The response is to help end the war so that the men and the women, right, can live in peace. And I think yeah. this is really, this is what was what impressed me, right? Because it takes a special kind of strength to not reject, right? But to rather in some way to forgive and at the same time to call the person who is the abuser redemption well i have to say first and foremost i'm grateful that you're the one that brought up the superhero reference because i'm always the one to bring up superhero movies <laughs> in, in my podcast and people are like what movie are you talking about so this guy's a movie nut so i'm grateful that my guest was the one that brought it up this time so thanks jennifer i appreciate that just helping out <laughs> <laughs> you know my audience you know who you're talking to so the, the so okay so so that's one of the things that you learned is that you saw kind of culture worldwide that there were at least in the, in the interviews that you had with the experts that you spoke with, that there was this response by the women um, that was, um, as you said, trying to uphold men and uphold women and, and finding the answers to the problems in a way that, that upheld both. In the, in the Cheyenne situation where you said it was um, that there was a sickness among the men was the way that they spoke about you know, domestic yeah. violence. And um, what a very different perspective, you know, to offer to this and, and beautiful in terms of looking at it in, in, in that way. And so that's one of the things that you saw, you know, with regards to just kind of looking at the different cultures and seeing that there's, there's responses. I guess personally, like for you, like what, 
were there any other insights or, or, or anything else that stood out, you know, as, as you've been reflecting on kind of the research? I think um, one of the things that, some of the things that struck me also kind of had to do with masculinity okay. in the sense that there seemed to be, um, and I heard this both from men and from women, this sense that there was something profound and important about masculinity that had been lost and or that they they needed to recreate they needed to recreate i I remember two interviews in particular that struck me um one was with marco lome in mexico who is the director of the john paul ii institute for studies on marriage and family in guadalajara and he spoke about his own experience of masculinity right in the home growing up um, you didn't cry if you were a boy, his father would hit him if he did that at school. It was always about, um, which boy can, can fight the most, right. Who can conquer the others. And it was about conquering women as sexual objects. And he said, it wasn't until he found himself in a relationship where he was the one being used. Mm-hmm. And, and he read a book on toxic masculinity that he began to tell himself, like, there has to be something better. And because he wasn't immediately able to find it in the culture, he said, I, I find that every day, he said, in conversation with my male friends who are my age, right? How can we be better men and fathers? And he said, but also my wife, <laughs> he says, my wife, when I come home and I collapse on the, on the sofa and I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I've been working all day. She's like, you're going to get up now and you're going to go over there and you're going to play with your children. And you're not going to do that because you're helping out. You're going to do that because that's part of what being a father is. They've been waiting for you all day long. Right. So again, like her kind of calling him to responsibility, but also him trying to search with other men in his culture. Right. How do we live out masculinity as Mexican men in a way that is authentic in a way that's that's not toxic. And so I thought that was very beautiful. And then there was also uh, an interview that I did in India um, with an entrepreneur. His name is Manish and his father is Hindu. His mother is Christian. And he spoke about the fact that his mother was very well educated. And um, when the parents got married, his parents got married, it wasn't specifically the relationship that his father imagined. But he said she, he had the mental acuity, right, to be able to change from the way he thought that relationship would be to a relationship <laughs> that dealt with the actual woman he married, right? So in, in some of the Hindu scripts, uh, writings, it argues that a woman should treat her husband as a god, right? No matter if he is faithful, no matter how he treats her, no matter what kind of income he has. And But marrying this educated Christian woman, his father was was very much forced to rethink it. And he said, unfortunately, that's not yet the case in all of India. He said, our women have moved forward. And he said, our men have yet to. So I thought, that was really interesting, right? There's there's certainly this recognition that something more needs to be done with masculinity, that perhaps it can be found in the culture. There, there's a search for this. Um, and also the recognition that often when we talk about gender, we might talk just about women. We might talk about relationships between women and men, but we don't necessarily talk about relationships between men. And uh, I was in Uganda speaking with uh, Dr. Iman Mwine there, um, who teaches in the uh, gender studies department of the university. 
And um, he, the, this was his insight, right? He said, we don't talk about these gendered relationships in terms of two persons of the same sex. He said specifically two men. And he gave kind of this, this beautiful example. He said, we can't, we pretend like all men are the same and their relationships don't matter. And he said, but there's um, a ritual that they have in their culture that's called the giveaway in which the husband's family goes to the 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 bride's family right before they're married and the bride is given to the husband's family however it's not given to the groom (laughs) it is given to the groom's father and the groom doesn't even enter in the building and he said when this was happening i was thinking like what is even the point like i don't even need to be here my dad's doing everything i don't say anything i don't do anything and i said well is that was that really the case could the ceremony have taken place without you and he said He said, not really. And it was later thinking about it that I realized that there was actually great beauty and significance in this, right? My father standing in as the head of the family, welcoming and taking responsibility for this young woman who's going to become part of our family and taking responsibility as well as guiding us in this new marriage into which we were entering. And I think this is perhaps one of the things that we need to talk more about, Um, not just masculinity, not just femininity, but then what are relationships like between men? right? How can those be healthy? How can those help men to grow? What are relationships like between women? Um, I've spent most of my life working in almost exclusively male environments. I do not regret (laughs) Sometimes relationships between women are really difficult as well. And I think, especially as as Catholics, as Christians, as people who, who take to heart the fact that we're created male and female and will be resurrected as women and men, these are questions we need to more profoundly ask and seek to answer. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I love how the insights here stretch both um, issues with, with in terms of femininity, um, women, and then issues also with men and how to be able to, to help them improve their relationships. You know, when you were talking about the, the your friend from Mexico or the, the, the gentleman that you interviewed and just saying that like it was when he realized it, that he was being used and how that kind of changed his, his kind of thinking about it and trying to understand, okay, well, what's a healthy way of being able to do this? Um, I, I don't know why I thought of it, but, but I guess I find that like with, with, so this is the context. I've given a couple lectures here recently on college campuses related to dating. And one of the questions that's come up actually on both campuses has been women lamenting that men are not asking them out and that the men in the community are not not taking that initiative to say, hey, like we're here, like ask us out. And so I've, I've made jokes about it and been like, gentlemen, you know, kind of have courage to take the step, you know, to do it or whatever. But as I've like sat and thought about this question, I think it speaks to something more in the sense that like men are confused about what the rules are. And so some of it isn't just that they're afraid. They just don't really know what we're supposed, we don't know what we're supposed to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do. These 19, 20 year olds who have grown up in an environment that has pretty much said that men are the problem to all of the problems in the world. I'm exaggerating. Excuse me for that. You know? <laughs> but, but, they've, but they've grown up with a lot of narrative, I should say. That, that's an extreme. Or that the only answer really to your masculinity is a superhero movie, you know, where you can really see masculinity you know, demonstrated you know, through, through physical violence, which... Again, I understand it has its place, but there's no there's no balance in terms of well, how do I translate what the Marvel movie is teaching me about masculinity to just being able to ask a girl out? I can't. Those points of connection are are being lost, um, and so I find that the women are asking these questions 
because their desire is that they want to be asked out. They want the the, the men in the group to 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 ask them out. Um, but the guys are just kind of lost with it. And I think it speaks more to a loss of of mask an understanding of masculinity in these contexts, in these cultures. Um, and and of course, both groups are 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 paying the price for it. And so I think w- what you've said is beautiful is that it's not there isn't, there shouldn't be this inherent competition where if it's like if, if women are doing better, then the men should suffer like a zero-sum game. Or if the men are doing better, then the women should suffer. It seems like one of the things that you've learned even across your research is that when when one suffers, the other suffers. And when one is doing well, the other should be doing well. And this kind of mutuality should be what exists in the cultures that are able to to communicate that sense that both should be doing well in their own right, that that's ultimately what the best is going to be. And when it's not there, what they're trying to work towards is that and is that sense of mutual respect yeah. and, and strength um, and exaltation of both. Precisely. I think um, just to give like a, a scriptural reference that this is very clear. Also, if you look at Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, right, the man, uh, Adam, right, uh, who can give all of the names to all of the animals does not pronounce his own name until he actually looks a woman in the face and calls her by name, right? At that, at that moment, looking her in the face, he's able to recognize who he is because he's beginning to discover the beauty and the mystery of woman. So there's that, that mutual respect, that mutual love that leads to like a greater self-realization on the part of both. At the same time, we see in Genesis 3, right, both the fall. <laughs> mm-hmm. When uh, Eve falls, Adam falls, and, and, and both of them suffer through that punishment. And at the same time, you have to realize how much that punishment isn't just meant to, to, um, to whip them both into submission, but it's actually meant to call them out of one another, right? The man comes home from working, he's, a, he's depressed, he's anxious, he's had a bad day, right? Because by the by the sweat of your, of your brow you shall toil and what does what does a good wife do right even if she's been working all day long even if she's been with the kids all day long whatever the situation is she goes out of her way to make him look further right to make him look at her right and the same thing right we we that same word for sorrow and travail that we find in the man's punishment is also found in the woman's punishment through through sorrow you shall give birth right your husband shall be your your master and you, and you shall desire that. And, um, and at the same time, a husband who, who loves his wife, isn't gonna, isn't gonna leave her with the screaming child and go play video games in the next room either. Right. He's going to come in, he's going to take the baby. He's going to look at her covered with spit up because this is like, I will be honest. This is the first time I'm covered with spit up in a week. Um, and he <laughs> well, I can said, hear the baby crying in the background also. So <laughs> my husband's so, being a good husband. Yes, he is. <laughs> so that we can have this interview at, at, at nine o'clock, France. Yes. Uh, uh, free, yeah, France. Time and and he says, "I love you, and you're beautiful." Right? Like mm-hmm. even those punishments are meant to call them out towards one another to kind of a mutual sanctification, a mutual redemption. Hey everybody, hope you're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Morrell. Just want to take a quick break here to encourage you to check out Dating Well. That is my masterclass on dating. If you are interested in learning more about these concepts and topics that we're speaking about right now, 
and how it applies to a healthy dating relationship. And you're gonna to wanna to check out Dating Well. It's 19 lessons, short video lessons, seven to 17 minutes in length that are geared to helping you better understand what the dating process is. In this series, I take you by the hand and I'll walk you through all the nooks and crannies of the dating journey. If you wanna understand what the purpose of dating is, how to date better, how to what to say on the first date, how to navigate dating apps, how to navigate arguments, how, how to navigate differences in personality. All of those things are topics that we cover in Dating Well. So if you wanna learn more about how to date better, then check out Dating Well by going to faithandmarriage.org. Okay, Jennifer, this has been great. And all the stories you've shared have been spectacular. You know, let's just kind of drive some of this this home, though. How do you define the difference between sex and gender? Because I think people are so confused and these terms are used interchangeably or there's so much um, um, ambiguity because because we, we've allowed our modern understanding is that it's it's all fluid. It's all self-determined. Um, but but we're starting to see the ends of that, I hope. I mean, at least the fruits of it are starting to emerge. And so I think even talking about it gets really difficult um, because, of, because of so much kind of angst surrounding this topic. But in terms of your research, what you've seen, what the church teaches, what you've seen in terms of just kind of your studies and your travels, like how do we define the difference between sex and gender? Yeah. So um, we'll try it. We'll make it as simple as possible, right? We could say that <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> That, How long do we got? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> We'd say sex is the um, psychological, spiritual, physiological, ontological reality of being created male and female, right? When when I pop out of the womb, or however you would like to say that, if I'm, you know, if there's a, a cesarean, it's a slightly different process. But anyway, um, when that being male or that being female is, is a fullness of reality that's given to me. It's not something right. that's just skin deep, right? And we know this even if you look at psychology, that men and women are different. We see this even in the spirituality, the way, the different ways that men and women pray. So it's when we say ontological, that's that deep reality of being male and female, of being created male and female. However, if all we had was sex, all men would be exactly the same and all women would be exactly the same. So to talk about gender is really to talk about the unique way in which each of us lives out our sex, right? How is it that Dr. Mario Sacasa lives out being male, right? How is it that my husband, Mr. Jean-Claude Morel, lives out being male? How is it that Pope Francis lives out being male? And that's really when we begin to talk about gender. It, it's something that has to do with the way that our culture has formed us, the way we have responded and accepted or denied certain things of our culture it has to do with the relationships with other men or with other women that are forming us. And it has to do with the grace of God that we accept, right? And so you can kind of think about the reality. All of us remember when we, we did these projects in, in kindergarten, right? They gave you a piece of paper and you had to fold it up like five or six times. And then you had to cut out bits and pieces of it. And then you unfolded it and it was a snowflake. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't cut the wrong pieces and it just fell apart, it was a snowflake and everybody's snowflake was original, but every snowflake was a snowflake, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, every man is a man, 
right? But it doesn't mean they're all the same. Gender is that reality that there is something unique in the way that each man lives out his masculinity. And there's something unique in the way that each woman lives out their femininity. And I think when we say this, um, there should be there should be a sigh of relief from everybody, <laughs> whether they consider themselves to be liberal, conservative, Catholic, atheist, however, right? Because what we're saying here is that you can still claim your masculinity, you can still claim your femininity, but you don't have to fit into somebody else's box, right? You in some way with God are the co-author of what it means that Dr. Mario is a man. I in some way am the co-author with God of what it means that Dr. Morel is a woman. And so it becomes God's gift to us in a certain way, the sex of being male and female, but the man or the woman that we are is our gift back to him to society and to the world at large. Yeah, that last comment he just made is spectacular because it's always, the it, relationship with God is always that. It's always a, 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 a re- reception. And then what do we do with the gift and how do we give it back? I mean, that's always, that's everything from all of our talents, all of our intellect, all of our interests. Um, but what you're speaking about is it's even deeper than that because the ontological reality of us being men and women is far um, more profound than just our interests and our personality and our skill sets. I mean, John Paul II says in The Theology of the Body that the primary relationship, our primary identity before God is that of human. Our secondary identity is is that of being uh, a man or a woman. Yes. And then from that, it's all the other stuff. But it's it's human first, male and woman, male and woman second, and then everything else: artist, drummer, um, writer. Um, you know, whatever other gardener, whatever other work stuff that we do, you know, is uh, cultural, all that stuff is, it comes after that. And so even though we have the capacity to be able to, to acknowledge that there's something real here, there's something real about sex that, as you said, it's not just biological, it's that ontological reality that is present, that is certainly manifested in the biology and in the psychology of individuals. But that gender then is this notion that we can take this gift and be able to give it back to God in a particular way that is unique and unrepeatable to me and unique and unrepeatable to you and to the whole world. And so when you start seeing that at a, at a cultural level, I think that's what excited me about your research is that you're able to kind of come into these different cultures and see, okay, well, how does this culture understand this versus this culture? And what are the similarities there? And that's what we were talking about in the first part of this interview. But saying that, again, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't have to say sex doesn't exist, this ontological reality doesn't exist as an act of rebellion against it. You know, like it's it, it's there, it's present, it's real. We recognize it and you still have freedom to be able to manifest your expressions within the reality of the circumstances that you find yourself in. Um, and I think that, that that is very, very important because I find with this issue, we, we gravitate to, to two extremes, socially, politically, however we want to say it. One is, um, and for, again, pardon me, but for, for overly simplistic reasons, we get overly rigid we get or, or overly conservative socially about it, or we get overly loose about it and overly liberal in the sense that this is just kind of the way the groupings kind of fall themselves to, to out. And, and the extremes are, 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 are neither of them are helpful. You know, is to say, yeah. well, then sex doesn't exist and everything's just fluid. Um, 
isn't helpful to the person, isn't honoring the reality of the person. But then the other extreme of getting too too rigid with regards to, to gender roles or saying that women, you know, it's in the Bible, women can't work, you know, and uh, this is what the church teaches um, is is too much of an extreme also that... that and also incorrect. <laughs> and also incorrect, exactly. Well, both are incorrect. That's the point, is that both are incorrect yeah. in, in the final analysis. And so to uphold them as truths are going to uh, inevitably lead to, to certain sets of consequences. Um, so... What do you what What are your thoughts here about what happens when we? I mean, why? I don't even know what I'm asking. Like, what are, What are you thinking about what I'm saying? I don't even know what I'm uh, okay, how Just about riff. I'll I'll, riff. I'll think riff. about what I think you're thinking about. Yeah. And I'll respond yeah, yeah. to that. How about yeah, that? That sounds great. I think you're right. I think there are there are two extremes, both in terms of goodwill that we can fall into as Catholics, right? Or, or as Christians or, or as people as who people, are trying to even just general, reasonably right. think about these things. Right. And the first would, would be an extreme that we can call liberal. And it's and I think it's motivated by both of these are motivated by fear. And I'd say that first extreme is really a fear that I'm going to somehow force my child into a stereotype where they will be uncomfortable and they will not be able to live out who they authentically are. And I think this happens when, for example, we pretend that we should never give a boy anything that's blue or a girl anything that's pink. And we should make sure that they have all kinds of toys for for all the different, you know, for both sexes. And, um, and you know, sometimes they have the they babies where we're going to dress them in gray. We won't tell people even whether they're a little boy or a little girl. And I think in a certain sense, this doesn't do any justice to the child, right? Because if part of gender is being able to relate with members of your own sex and to decide from that how to live out your masculinity and femininity, either by accepting, rejecting, modifying, transforming, right? We're not giving those children that, that freedom to do that. And I, I can think, for example, <laughs> my stepson, Tom, whom I absolutely love, and I hope I, I'm not like trespassing some kind of privacy law of mentioning him at this point, but... Um, like will not wear anything that he thinks is too girly. His dad came home with orange shorts one day. It was like burnt red. He's like, that's pink. There was like this whole <laughs> argument for like, you know, five hours about whether or not he's going to wear these shorts because he thought they were too girly. But at the same time, Tom loves dance and he goes to dance every other weekend, right? Like this is, and, and nobody says, well, he shouldn't do that. Why isn't he, you know, doing soccer or rugby or something else? It's like, that's the kind of boy that Tom is. And what you do is you encourage him in that and you help him to grow in that. And even um, Dr. Yarhouse, whom you've recommended to me on, on these issues, these psychological issues regarding gender, he says that one of the most important things, even for children who struggle with some kind of gender confusion um, or gender dysphoria, is not necessarily that you, you place them in sex stereotypical activities, um, but it is that you you find an activity where they can interact with members of their peers and be affirmed, hmm. right? That's what's most important. Um, so I think that's an important thing to say to parents, right? Like you want to be, you're worried that you're somehow forcing your child into a stereotype. But I think the best thing to do is put them in blue when you feel like it. Don't put them in blue when you don't, you know, like give the child the freedom. And at the same time, don't pretend that there aren't some things that they can't culturally do just because that happens to be what, what boys or girls in the society do. So I think that's, you know, that's one fear that we need to be honest about and addressing. And 
And I think the, the second fear that arise when you what you kind of termed as the, the the conservative extreme is this fear that if we don't have very strict stereotypical roles for men and for women, then uh, we will lose all sense of masculinity and femininity. And here I think it's really important to make a very a, a historical point, right? A lot of times our ideas of masculine or feminine roles, which is, is it's a word I don't even like, the word role, because it comes mm -hmm. from playing something, not mm -hmm. there's no, there's not an authenticity, even in the word itself. Um, it comes from the 1950s. And our idea of what the 1950s was <laughs> versus what what it meant to actually live that. And it 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 misses all of the tradition of the church, right? And misses the beauty of, for example, um, Prisca and Aquila, who are mentioned six times by St. Paul in the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. Four out of those times, Prisca is mentioned before Aquila. What does that mean? It means that St. Paul is giving precedence to her as the teacher in the family. When they go to teach Apollos, she's the one who's mentioned first. That was not typical for the era, right? Here would be typical, for example, in France, you mentioned the woman's name and then the husband's name afterwards. Not typical in St. Paul's era, right? So he's giving precedence to her, precedence to her teaching. He speaks about the fact that both of them have careers as tent makers. They practice their profession together. And I, we, so again, we have to be careful about those stereotypical ideas that we have that often come from the 1950s where the husband makes all the bread brings home the bacon um the wife sits at home looks pretty takes care of the kids and everybody's happy and i have to say in the same time in my research and in my interviews what i found was that the people who best lived out um their masculinity and femininity and i want to say especially their masculinity were men who came from families where there was shared decision-making by the husband and the wife, right? Where um, where the husbands had the mental acuity to see that, to adjust to that, where there was not a one person making all of the decisions, top-down hierarchical structure, but really there was a gift and a respect um, between the two, a mutual respect for what they were both capable of and what they contributed to the marriage, which I think is is really what St. John Paul II means by the word mutual submission. I saw this in, in India. I saw this in Mexico. I saw this in Italy. Um, I'll, I'll finish with this last quote, which is one of my favorite. Uh, I spoke with an Italian sociologist there named Sergio Bellardinelli, um, who, who's very well known in the country. At first, I was... I asked everyone, am I allowed to use your name? And at first he was like, no. And then he was like, well, it doesn't matter. Everybody will, the moment they hear what I said, they'll know it's me. And he said, you know, in my grandparents' family, everything was predictable. We knew exactly what grandfather was going to do and exactly what grandmother was going to do. And he said, but in my family, nothing has been decided beforehand. He said, we have the salt of those everyday tensions, which means that we have to fight it out, we have to work it out, and we have to make those decisions together. And he says, and that's what gives flavor to the family. Yeah. And so I really want to encourage, especially um, young couples who are dating or young couples who've just gotten married, and even those of y'all who are older to think about that, right? What does our decision-making process look like as a family, right? Do, is it respectful for both the husband and the wife? Because sometimes the shoe's on the other foot and it's the husband who's not getting the necessary respect. There can sometimes be undesired or or sometimes even overt manipulation on the part on the part of the wife 
but what does our decision-making process look like, right? How do we deal with it when we have tension in the family? And what is this teaching to our children? Because when that lack of respect is there on the part of either spouse, what that does then is it makes it that much more difficult for their children to live out an authentic femininity or an authentic masculinity. And it can open, it can open the door for not just injustices, but for abuse down the line. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Okay. Great stuff. So I, you know, my couple of things that I'm riffing off of you here, the, the comment that you made about time and about gender roles, that word even coming into kind of its existence was in the fifties. And that I, I like what you said in terms of, I never thought of it that way, but that you don't like the, the, the word role because it seems to connotate that we're playing something like we're acting like it's a role that we're performing in. Um, as if it's like a stage production or something of that nature. We all have an assigned role that we're supposed to do. And, and it's, it's too confining. But when you talked about culture, it, what it made me think of was, was, was how time plays a role in culture. Moment, history, where we are, the circumstances of our time, the circumstances of, of, our, of, our, of where we are right now in 2022 is part of our experience of how we define culture. And so it seems that almost that like the conservative, if we pull to that extreme, the, the conservative extreme wants to say that there was a time where this was already figured out, where we had these answers already established. And if we can just go back to that time, then we will we will reestablish the, the, the utopia. We will reestablish that moment when it was already existed. But then on the other side of this of the, the spectrum here, the, the, the more extreme kind of liberal side of it speaks of when we use the word progressive in the sense that it's almost as if there hasn't been a time, but we can achieve it. And so if we just get to that point in time, then we will achieve that utopia that we are seeking. And it will come into existence if we continue to do the things that we're doing. And so it's almost like a false hope that's placed on one side, a false hope of saying that we're going to exalt a certain moment that never really existed. But then on the other side, we're going to exalt a false moment that never really will come either. And so all we really have is the present and being able to contend with the realities of the circumstances that we find ourselves in and being able to then deal with reality as it is and being able to then say, we have real questions related to sex and gender um, and, and in, in our American culture in France or in any culture you've gone to, everybody's still wrestling with this thanks to Adam and Eve. And there's never, yes. like, <laughs> there's never really, the, the, and, and as you said, the tension then is that there's never really going to be a moment where we can stick the, the, the flag in the ground and say, well, we got it all figured out, which yeah. then leads to your second point, which is that the best, the best step that we can take moving forward is this notion of mutual submission, mutual discernment, and being able to kind of Give, use the reason that God's given to us to discern the circumstances that we find ourselves in as individuals. And this is something that, you know, not sorry to be self-referential again here, but something I drive home with regards to dating well, that what you're doing in dating, I think, one of, one of the key tasks I believe of dating is that you're learning how to do that function for the first time. Like you're not just discerning on your own. You're not just making decisions unilaterally. You're cooperating with another person. And for the first time, you're having to actually deal with these things and negotiate and discern and, and pray together and have hard questions. And you're learning how to do that together as a couple. And if you can figure that out 
and and you move towards marriage, wonderful. Now you've established a foundation that hopefully will help you for the rest of your life, which is what we're trying to do, which is to say then that the circumstances and the time and space that I find myself in now with my wife, Kristen, is different than yours where you are in France, but it's different than my grandparents who were in Nicaragua or my great grandparents, or if we want to go back a thousand years before the new world was even existed, you know, and the questions that they had to deal with were unique to those circumstances. And so. (laughs) It's true. We cannot lose somebody else's time, right? right? Like God has given to us a certain time. He's given to us a certain vocation. He's given to us a certain place, a certain culture, a certain reality. And that too is a gift as well as its own particular, it has its own particular struggles. And it's there where our sanctification is lived out. It's there where our redemption takes place, not in some ideal reality, right? Um, I remember, you know, that I think sometimes with spouses, we can fall into, if it was just me on my own, I would be so holy. (laughs) That's not, you're not a monk. You're not a religious, you're not a cloister religious sister, right? God has given you this family this is where you live out your sanctification and your redemption. You live it out with this husband. You don't live it out with the husband you wish you had. He's not living it out with the wife he wishes he would have married, right? It's this person in the sacrament of marriage gives you the graces to be able to do that. And I think we need to have a lot more confidence in the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. But even for single people who aren't married and aren't in the sacrament, you are still learning as you said earlier, that the, the task is improving relationships among that are sex specific among our members of the same sex. You know, if you're a woman, having relationships with other women, friendships. But then even when it comes to men, having healthy friendships with those who are of the opposite sex as well. And then when it comes to romantic partners, you know, learning how to do that well as well. And again, it's just it, but it's all based in where you find yourself and where the circumstances that, that, that you're contending with. Um, so praise the Lord. Okay. We've got it. Talk to me about your book. <laughs> Let's shift. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the great academic tome that is going to be coming out soon with all the interviews I'm still writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I have, I have a week in Rome where I get to lock myself in a library. So hopefully that will be helpful. That one's not out yet, but Um, as I was preparing even for this, this tour and this methodology, these cultural interviews, I was encouraged by a couple of different people to write a popular book. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense, right? Like who's on the ground, who has their hands in the pasta, as the Italians would say, like who most needs what I'm doing. And I'll be honest, it is not other academics who we're just going to argue about crossing the T dotting the I, the particular way that we've defined one word versus another, you know, whatever. Yes. It, it's it's people who are catechists, DREs, youth ministers, uh, young men and women who are just trying to figure this out. So um, as of about a month ago, I advanced printed 100 copies of this book. Um, Jean, Jean, St. John Paul II's book is called Male and Female, He Created Them. This one is called Woman and Man, He Resurrected Them. And it's really meant to begin with those those first questions that we have today, and then to use St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body to elaborate a theology of masculinity and femininity. And not just to, to, to stop at the scriptural, um, but then even to look at how that's been lived out historically, right? We were talking about the importance of time. 
um, in different cultures and then also by men and women. So we speak, for example, of Christine de Pizan, who was a, a 15th century French writer. She was the first woman to make a living by professionally writing. Um, and this is where I have to say a lot of the credit. Five of these chapters, specifically on the different cultures, are written by different men and women that I met. So this one was written by Professor Ryan Carruth, whom some of you may know, based in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, we have a chapter there on Suarwana Nez de la Cruz, written by Dr. Diana Ibarra, where she talks about this 17th century religious sister who used her poetry to write um, for feminism against misogyny, against um, the use of women in prostitution. We talk about the Ugandan martyrs. Father Francis Naku does that work for us. We have one on masculinity and femininity in India, which is really interesting because that is a pluriculturalistic nation. Right? Mm -hmm. um, even to walk down the street, you're so you're assaulted by like the different colors, the sounds, the um, the way that people interact, the way that they dress. It's bizarre. It's absolutely beautiful. This is. Father Francis Sandy, uh, Father Sandy Domenesis does this for us. And then um, last but not least, a chapter on Adrian von Speyer, um, a 20th century mystic wife and mother who writes on um, men and women by looking at the Trinity, seeing how that's that's mirrored in the in the different way that men and women interact, and also how the sacraments um, can help us better understand um the way that we interact as men and women right and then a, a, a final chapter kind of meant to like gather together some useful tools for ministry um, but the hope is of course just to put something in people's hands where they can begin to say wow these were my questions and here i, be I can begin to answer them fantastic so if people are interested in, in getting the book uh how can we do that do you have links well, on, on the institute website well, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> this point, they're going to pray. It. It's being <laughs> published, right? So, I had 100 advanced copies printed. Those were those were sold out. Well, so I think Good Dr. Mario you. got the last copy. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy that I did. That's great. We'll print out another hundred and let's let's, <laughs> let's give some to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are those are being published right now. ATC Publications, and hopefully sure. in the next week or two, I'll have a link that I can give to you. So sure. by the time the podcast goes out. We'll have that done. Um, currently, we wanted to publish specifically in India so we could be price specific because a lot of people in developing countries, unfortunately, are being hit with a gender ideology and they don't have tools. So we wanted to make sure that the price was not exorbitant for them. So if you're in the US and you wanna get something from ATC, I would suggest the ebook, unless you wanna wait a month for the shipping. <laughs> We're also currently in conversations with certain American publishers so we can look at getting that to you much, much more quickly. Fantastic. This is great. Okay. Uh, I have a couple more questions. We have a little bit more time. Is that right? <laughs> so let's go back to this. Now we talk about the book. I don't remember. So back back to the notion we were talking about with primary identity being human, secondary identity being um, sex um, or male and female. Uh, how, because this is pertinent to what we were talking about earlier with regards to the relationship between sex and gender. How, what is the relationship then between sex and personhood? Um, the way that I usually think of it is, um, is gender a flower, Go ahead. right? Okay. So you can think of, we have this common ground of humanity in which two flowers are planted and let's say a daisy and a daffodil 
I don't know what the differences are between those, but I'm sure there are some of you listening. <laughs> they, I just know there are two I different kinds of flowers. Yeah. Okay, so there's a daisy and a daffodil growing one beside the other. So they're both planted in that common ground of humanity, right? So that's going to give them the nutrients that they need. The water's going to go through. They're going to have sun, the sun bathing them. Beautiful, right? Then we they have they both have a stalk, right? And we could say that stalk that is particular to each one, the roots and, the, and that stalk going up. Um, our sex, right? So let's say the daffodil is male and the daisy is female, just to randomly assign. But then there's going to be a particular way in which each one flourishes, right? So as you know, for, for plants, there's always a genotype. That's kind of the basic code that's being given, but it's expressed differently in each one. So you can see that particular flourishing or flowering of the daffodil is what that gender is. So that masculinity for the man or femininity for woman. And usually have a picture. <laughs> Can't I don't have a picture here. But I have like the ground is clearly marked humanity. The stalks are clearly marked sex. And then the budding flower is clearly marked gender, right? So that there's certainly something that is common to all of the daffodils that are male. And there's something common to all of the daisies that are female. However, but the particular way in which each one flourishes is that gender, right? That then makes each daffodil unique mm -hmm. from the other daffodils and each daisy unique from the other daisies. Okay. I don't know if that's helpful or if that's more convenient. It is. Well, no, no. I think, I think it's helpful for me in the sense that like reiterating the notion that there's something common, but there's something unique also. There's a shared reality, but there's an individual reality. And so... It's it, even in the sense of personhood that that I guess the reason I'm asking is because we certainly talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the, we, the, the extremes on both sides. But clearly in our in our day and age, the extreme on the liberal side is what seems to be um, what's well, what's most popular, I would say, or, or at least has more more of a voice. Maybe I should say it that way. More of an influence? Can I say it that way? I don't know. Maybe, mm. you know, we think of Correct. like... Yeah, more of an influence. More of an influence, I would say, in terms of what's happening. Um, and the reason that books like yours are trying to contend with in terms of wrestling with questions that, that the culture is proposing. And tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it seems that we almost define now personhood apart from the common experience. That I mean, we certainly do in terms of experience, but but we wouldn't, we wouldn't speak of it the way that you just spoke about it, you know, that... that we put so much emphasis on, um, as a culture, where modern gender theory seems to put a lot of emphasis on, well, power imbalances, power differential. But then even in that, really almost kind of this um, constructivist view that we have the ability to be able to not just self-determine our reality or self-describe our reality, but both self-determine and self-describe, that we can just kind of create whatever we want as long as we're just not harming other people. And that's the basis of, of what keeps us together is that we're just not harming other people. Um, but I always found that postmodern kind of notion truthfully rather lonely because if it really is that we're just our own individual psyches or own, not even just psyches, realities separate from everybody else's reality, then what a lonely existence that is because then there's nothing shared that you can actually have. Um, if you follow that line of thinking out to its conclusion, that's where I think it leads is just this intense loneliness that there really is nothing that you can really share then across 
um, realities because my reality is fundamentally different from your reality. Therefore, I have to define my reality and, and describe it in a way that you understand what my reality is, even to the point of pronouns and, 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 and that make sure that you use what I, what I determine um, to be best for me, which, again, I just feel breaks us apart in a sense of community because we need that. We need the acknowledgement of the, the common sense as well. Now, again, we can get too far into that extreme, and we've talked about that, and we can certainly talk about that. But just focusing on this one, I find that 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 this hyper individualism um, leads to 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 a whole host of places. And one for me as a therapist, I I, I go to the emotional place, and and I think that that that's a concern. I think it, there's what you're referring to is really this difficulty in trying to to balance objective reality and subjective experience, right? Correct. Um, And I think what often happens is either we go for this hard objectivism where we we think everything has to be exactly the same and experienced exactly the same and there's no no place for nuance or this subjectivism where nothing can be experienced the same, nothing is the same, there is, as you said, no shared reality. And I think um, there's an author, Father Francis Martin, who wrote a book called The Feminist Question, gave a really good example of how to understand the the way that the two of these come together. And he says, if you and I are standing together and we're both looking at the same tree, he's like, the tree is the objective reality. And he said, but both will both be because we're standing in two different places, right? We both have a subjective, thus a lived, right? Subjective means it means lived, a subjective viewpoint that is different. He says, even if you and I were to take turns and stand in exactly the same place because of the differences of time, because of different experiences we have with trees, maybe you're a gardener, right? Or maybe you, you had a bad experience with a tree when you were little, whatever that may be. He says, our experience of that tree will be different. And what that does when we share those shared experiences of an objective reality is allows us to widen our understanding of that shared reality, right? So we shouldn't we shouldn't be worried that there is such a thing as subjective, right? We shouldn't be afraid that having such a thing as objective cancels out my personhood either. But it should be the beauty that there is something objective that we can all share, such as our humanity, such as the, the experiences of our of our sex, um, that allows us then to grow as we learn from others and then make contributions to them too in understanding what it means to be a human person, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be American, what it means to be French. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that that goes right, bringing this conversation full circle, which is beautiful as we kind of close this thing up, is uh, to your experience that you said when you were in Italy, um, talking about your experiences as a woman and meeting with other women and their experiences and how the objective reality of being a woman is real. But the shared common kind of experiences that you're able to learn from them that helped you to better understand your womanhood. Um, that's what you're saying, right? Exactly. And, and it was such a gift, right? Because it was um, to have those kinds of conversations with someone who comes from another culture, um, with someone who comes, who has lived out her femininity in a different way allowing me to live mine out in a fuller way, right? Not to be afraid of the fact that I was single or that I didn't have any children, but to be able to accept that as a gift from God and and to be able, my friend who now is married and who has two children and who does both, 
right? Like she works and she spends time at home um, to know that both of us in some way through our, our common conversations, where we shared our subjective viewpoints on an objective reality, we're able to, to enrich the femininity of one another. Yeah, that's awesome. And that goes back to John Paul II, like you said, right out of the gates that, that, you know, what made him, I mean, difficult to read as a philosopher, but brilliant, you know, in his mind and his heart was that he honored both. And he recognized that there was this, this objective truth, but there is also the subjective experience that needs to be honored as well. The lived experience, um, ultimately, as we said, everything God has given to us is a gift. All of our moments in, in time and space, um, all of our realities, everything that God has given to us is a gift that we treasure and that we we then return to him. And we, we, we return to him with some interest, you know, that that's the yeah. parable of the talents is that we've done what we can do with whatever he's given to us and that we return the investment and let him know that nothing's been wasted. And so the objective to obliterate objective realities to say that the gift doesn't exist. Um, and I would say then to the 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 conservatives to say then that there's nothing to return because there's it's already been predetermined for me and so there's nothing more that I can offer to it that's going to make it any different and uh, to deny the gift is is problematic but to not do anything with the gift is equally problematic um, in the spiritual life as well as um, just even in, in in relationships so let's go Jennifer amen <laughs> it's, it's, it's like Jesus. Well, this is why I'm always grateful to have you on the show. Um, thank you for um, the many conversations we've had, uh, both on air. I think this is now the fourth time I've had you on the podcast and um, and the many conversations we've had off air, just to be able to talk about these things in a way that that I hope are helpful to individual to people who are listening, to give them the freedom to be able to um, go live the life that God wants you to live. And, uh, and through prayer and discernment and wisdom, being able to understand what that means. Yes. So any other final thoughts, Jennifer, before we wrap this thing up? Ooh, um, I, I just wanted to thank you. And I wanted to thank the listeners as well, because as, uh, as we said beforehand, and maybe even after we started the podcast, um, I'm still sifting through so much of this and being able to share this with other people, things that have been gifts for me in my, in my own research um, is a great blessing, right? And it helps me to think further. It helps me to think deeper. And hopefully it means that the gift I will give back to y'all in terms of, of, of a book or or wh- wherever else the Lord may have that in terms of this podcast, um, it may be that much the richer. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, you're welcome. Well, keep going, Jennifer. Keep doing what you're doing. It's great. So thank you so much, Dr. Morrell, for joining me on the podcast. As always, God bless you and uh, have a great day. All right, everybody. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Again, just episode 100. I, I, I'm not sure kind of what to say as we wrap up this particular episode, except simply this. I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to each and every single one of you who are listening. Thank you so much for, for giving me your time. And, and I pray that these shows have been helpful to you. And for those of you who have taken time to leave a comment or send me an email or find me on Facebook or Instagram, to tell me those things, then I truly, I want you to know that I am incredibly, incredibly grateful. I started this show over four years ago as kind of an experiment and a way for me to be able to better understand my own doubts and the questions that I was struggling with 
when I began the, began the show. But I knew that I had a message. I knew that I had a voice and I knew I had something to say in this Catholic space and wanted to offer a program such as this that gave room for nuanced and balanced conversations. So whether it's talking about faith and doubt, whether it's talking about suffering in the spiritual life, whether it's talking about prayer, whether we're talking about a whole host of mental health, mental health issues, or even when we have discussions such as these that are directed at sex and gender, my goal throughout this whole series, this whole, excuse me, podcast has been to find these balanced, nuanced, in-depth discussions that give room for you, the listener, to be able to, to listen, to reflect, and to think about these topics in hopefully a refreshing and new way. And so again, I'm grateful that we've been able to accomplish so much with the show and what it's been able to spin out also in terms of programs like Dating Well and other speaking engagements and things that I've done. So again, I pray that this podcast may continue to be a blessing for you. And I ask for your prayers. Please pray for us and our family. It is a lot of work to continue to do this. And, um, and I'm just grateful. That's all I can say. So grateful to have 100 episodes done, which to me is just incredible. I never thought I'd, I'd make it this far. But just again, all I can say is thank you so much for giving me your time. And I pray that you may, that this episode finds you well. And I pray that this episode, as all the other episodes of Always Hope, have helped you in your faith journey in some form or fashion. So God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to continue serving you in this medium. So God bless everybody. 